it. You don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. <laughs> this sound like theme music. Motivation to grind and get you through it. Church. Unbothered, never losing. Check the score. Jamel show improving. Trophy. Don't make me tell you 5011 times from politics to laugh. Every week she shines. My word, how I live it. You don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. Last week, I appeared on The Shop, the HBO show executive produced by LeBron James and his business partner, Maverick Carter. Uh, And I was on the show with DJ Khaled, Trey Young, Chase Young, Meek Mill, and of course, Maverick and also Paul Rivera, who serves as a host as well. And we were talking about hip hop and sports. And I said something that apparently was controversial. Here it is. The thing about hip-hop now that's really interesting um, is that it's multi-generational now. Totally. And see, it wasn't that way before. And that's why, like, I feel like in sports, I've said this about top fives with, you know, basketball. The top five has got to change. It can't be the same one rooted forever because we're seeing different shit all the time. Yeah, of course. But in hip-hop, I feel like we're just so much more emotional about who those top five rappers are. Like, I love Tupac. I love Biggie. But they're going to have to move out the top five yeah. because it's new shit that we're seeing. People have gotten better. People have gotten better. Got it's more like accolades. what it is. I think that's a great point. Like, one of the things that frustrates me is, like, I, we got a lot of former players and former people in the media, and I wish they understood how much they meant to us. Like, we, we're just taking our games and making it our style, but also stealing from them. And so it's okay if the, the next generation is better than yours. And so therefore, the word of the week is evolution. Just give me a second to speak. It's the word of the week. Huh? Yeah. First, let me explain where I was coming from. I know greatness, no matter what field, isn't something that is duplicated easily. And for the record, while I don't have Tupac in my top five anymore, does he still belong in the top five? Sure, if you want him to be. Some things are timeless. And Pac's career, like Biggie's, like Jay-Z's, like Nas's, is a timeless career. But things have to change don't they? Or rather, things should change. And based off the comments and the backlash, if you want to call it that, that I received uh, for saying that at some point Biggie and Pac have to move out of the top five, many of you are determined to never, ever let some folks go. Now, I can't say that there is a current rapper in their 20s that I see as this generation's Tupac or Biggie, but I don't know that I'm supposed to. As I said, hip hop is multi-generational. And what these kids listen to today, they consider to be great. It's not really meant for me, but that doesn't mean it's not good. I just never want to be that old head constantly shitting on today's music because I don't understand it. My mother hated hip hop, still does. Whenever I was listening to hip hop back in the day, all she did was complain about the sampling. She said it wasn't original and hip hop artists were just stealing music from the past and turning it into some dumb shit that she didn't understand. Now, as much as people may rail against today's music, calling it mumble rap, saying these new artists aren't talking about anything. Let me remind you that everybody we were listening to back in the day wasn't exactly spitting a dissertation about the racial wealth gap or institutional racism. And we've romanticized our golden era of hip hop, which I consider uh, for folk like me to be mid to late 80s up until the early 2000s and made it seem like every rapper was Cornell West or Stokely Carmichael. We made it seem like every rapper was conscious, had substance and was just so elevated. Sure, we had some rappers like KRS-One, Ice Cube, Tribe Called Quest, NWA, the usual suspects. But some of it was trifling. I mean, it was a good kind of trifling. It was a trifling I thoroughly enjoyed and still listen to to this day. But we don't need to be lecturing these kids about shit when we were listening to shit like this. It ain't nothing like black pussy on my dick. Word to the motherfucking DJ quick. And also shit like this. Ooh, baby, I like it, bro. Yeah, baby, I like it, bro. Ooh, baby, I like it, bro. Yeah, baby, I like it, bro. Now, before y'all start yelling at me and saying you can't compare AMG and Old Dirty Bastard to these rappers of today, I fuck with AMG and Old Dirty Bastard, but they had their own lane of rap that was different from everyone else's. I went to Spotify to check to see what were the top hip hop songs in rotation this week. 
Number one was Lil Nas X's Industry Baby, which also features Jack Harlow. Number two was Rap Star by Polo G. Number three was What's Your Name by Tyler, the Creator. Young Boy Never Broke Again. Not going to lie. Had no idea who that was. But that's my fault more than anything. And Ty Dolla Sign also on the same song. Now, these are all very fun and catchy songs. And I think when us old heads reduce today's music to mumble rap and it not being very good, we don't want to own up to the fact that maybe today's music just isn't for us. There's no right or wrong, but it just may not be for us. Just like our music may not be for today's rap fans. Even though a piece of my soul died, I remember when Lonzo Ball, the NBA point guard, said that the Migos and Future were, quote, real hip hop and Nas was outdated. He said nobody listens to Nas anymore. And while I strongly disagree with what he said, it reminded me of a conversation I had with Vince Staples on this here podcast about hip hop. Let's be real. Like if it's it's about the experience in which you heard the song and where you heard the song, because if you know if Fifty Cent put out in the club right now, do necessarily work. If Tupac put out Dear Mama right now, ain't nobody listening to that. So it's like, does that take away from the quality of the song? Like, no. If they put out rappers of light right now, you getting clown. You're gonna be a meme. But that's one of the most important significance. If somebody came and did a song and said a hip hop, a heavy, a hit, whatever that is, they getting clown. We clown Blueface, and he doing a version of that. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, it all depends on what you're looking at and how you look at it. Now, as much as it pained me to admit it, there was a kernel of truth to what Vince Staples said. Today's rap listener is just accustomed to a different sound. And when I was on the shop, I was just trying to speak to the simple fact that whether we like it or not, some of our faves won't be in the top five forever. There will come a point where things change. Most of us just aren't mentally ready to handle this. But I am sorry to report we have to evolve the word of the week. Just give me a second to speak. It's the word of the week. And now on to today's show. I was first introduced to today's guest through her Netflix comedy special called Three in the Morning. I thought she was smart, funny, thoughtful, and her viewpoint on her own sexuality was really refreshing and layered. And again, funny. She took that same approach to her HBO series, Pause, which is one of the most entertaining and honest late night talk shows I've seen. And I use the term talk show loosely because nothing like you've seen in late night is like Pause. It's more like the audience is being let in on a really smart and fun dinner party that's hosted by today's guests. Now, when we taped this podcast, it was up in the air where the pause would be renewed for a second season on HBO. And I'm happy to say, yes, it has been renewed. So coming up next on Jamel Hill is Unbothered, Sam J. So, Sam, I'm going to um, start this by asking you a question that I like to ask every guest that appears on this pod. Um, when did you become unbothered? That's a good question. Uh, probably about 27, 28, I think, was around the age when I was kind of like, I don't care, man. I'm just going to do the things that I believe in and what feels right in my heart, like across the board, really, even when it came to like dealing with family and friends and just all of that. I think that's when I really stepped into like my authentic self and was just kind of like, this is who I am, kind of take it or leave it. Now, that was a couple of years before you actually started doing comedy, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, at that point, when you became uh, unbothered, were you out? Yes. Yeah, I have been out since I was like 24. 23 something like that yeah I, I read something that you said that how you were late to everything like <laughs> yeah late in terms of i think you said late getting titties like getting your period <laughs> mm -hmm. uh as a fellow late bloomer i can relate i mean i didn't get my period i think i was like 15 and i thought something was terribly wrong with me. yeah <laughs> I was, I was like making fun of me and stuff it was it was kind of messed up and i thought maybe i was it was never gonna happen and then I thought like, I was going to be flat chested for sure. But then titties came one day. So like, I don't know. <laughs> so what was uh, what was your coming out process like? Because even for when I hear a lot of people talk about, you know, coming out, it's usually I have to say a little earlier than than their 20s typically. So what happened with you? You know, I just I used to have a boyfriend in, in high school and 
we were together for a long time. So we probably dated from the time I was 15 to I was like 22. And that's like a lot of your sexual development years. And I also like lost my mother while we were dating. So like I had gone through like a tragedy. So I was really like close to him. You know what I mean? And then when we broke up, like I just was dating dudes and I just didn't like, I don't know. It just wasn't a connection happening. And I thought like, oh, maybe. And I was sleeping with dudes too. And I was like, well, maybe like I need to be like one of those people that's like in love for me to like sex with somebody or whatever. But I was also finding that I wasn't connecting with men like at all in a real way. And I was in Atlanta and women were hitting on me all the time. And I remember telling my friend, like, girls keep hitting on me down here. And she was like, you should try it. And I was like, and that was the first time I even entertained, like you could try that. And I was like, should I try that? And I'm just a curious person. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a curious person. And I was like, mm, maybe I should try that. I don't know why when she said it, it just sounded really interesting to me. And so I started going in chat rooms and like talking in gay chat rooms and just like seeing if I could like talk and Mac at girls. And then I was like, I'm kind of like into this. And I met this girl off Craigslist who like her post was like, I like anime and I'm black. And I was like, that's cool. I like anime. And we started like chatting offline and then we met up and then we hooked up and I didn't tell her it was my first time. And then we ended up dating for like off and on for like two years. And I didn't even tell her it was my first time to like a year into us dating. And I was like, yeah, I never done any of this shit before. And she was like, you're lying. And I was like, I'm not. And then after that, uh, I was just like outside. There was all these beautiful women in Atlanta. And I was just like, I was just for the shits. <laughs> Oh man! I mean, was she um, was she bothered by the fact that you did not share the fact that that was you know your first time? I think I waited long enough where it wasn't a big deal anymore. Like we had been dating for so long at that point, she was just more like shocked than she was bothered. And the way I came out to my family, I just brought her one day to a family reunion, and I had cut all my hair off, and I was like wearing a men's suit jacket, and I was just like, "Yeah, this is what I'm doing now." <laughs> and how did your family react? They were just like, whatever. I was always kind of the weird one. And I was always like going to the beat of my own drum. So I think they were just like, whatever. Well, you mentioned that you're a curious person by nature. And that definitely comes through in your show, Pause, on HBO, which is one of my favorite things to watch. And this is a brilliantly done show. And shout out to uh, Prentice Penny, who is uh, my neighbor. I mean, we don't live right next to each other, but we live like... A, a few blocks from each other or whatever. And Prentice, who was a showrunner for Insecure, also uh, helped you develop this show. And it's so well done because it's so you. And I just need to know, like, are dinner parties at your house, like, as lit as they seem, as they are on this show? Because <laughs> your dinner parties seem, like, fucking amazing. <laughs> uh, honestly, yeah, that's pretty much what it's like. Like, all those people, like, everyone on the show is my friend or a friend adjacent who I like kind of know, but mostly people I really know and hang out with. And um, it's not like we tell them like, yo, you're going to come. We're going to talk about money or babies. I just invite them to like hang out. And, um, and then we just go for it. And like a lot of times stuff just comes up and it fits the narrative. And then I'm allowed to kind of push the conversation where I want it to go. So in, in all honesty, yeah, that's pretty much what, the, <laughs> what it's like uh, if you're hanging out with me, for sure. Yeah. Well, I, I think um, that's why it doesn't even feel right to describe it as a late night show, although technically that's the bucket that it's in, because this is not how late night shows are are done. I mean, you're not you're not at a desk. You're not in a studio um, that people you interview are not famous, but yet they're, you know, people that have great conversations, you know, with you. And I don't know whose job it is to put the captions of who people are. Whoever that is, that person, give them a raise. If it's you, give yourself a raise because that's funny as fuck. Because <laughs> uh, my favorite was the nigga who make white people money, like the tech guy who just got out of prison. <laughs> and then a lot of times Langston will come up with them too. Like, like when we're in the edit, he'll be like, oh, I think this won't be good. And I'm usually like, yeah, that's good. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's very, very well um, done. Talk to me about like how you came up with the the concept for this show how did you come up with the concept for this show honestly man it was just a lot of talking like before we really had a room together and, and even had uh had writer hired me and princess would just hop on zoom like two times or three times a week 
and just talk about stuff, talk about stuff that was going on, talk about things I was interested in talking about. Um, and that was like the base of us kind of like trying to figure out what the show was going to be and what it was going to like feel like. And he would always say, like, it should just fit you. It should feel like a fine tailored suit. Like, if, if it doesn't fit you, then it's not going to work. And so we kept, you know, going through stuff. And I and I had there's so many ideas. At one point, very early on, I was like, maybe it's a late night show that makes fun of late night shows where it is in a studio, but we make fun of the studio shit. But that just didn't feel like me. And it felt like something that someone else could do. You know what I mean? And then it was a car i was going to be in a car talking to my homie and my homie was going to kind of serve as what the party was but that also kind of felt contrived and a little forced like now i'm just yelling shit at my friend <laughs> and he's just got to like drive me to different places it just felt like that ain't it either that's not really how it feels you know like how i wanted it to feel and then one night and we, we had the room up at that point so we were writing the car stuff we were we were in the the midst of writing the car stuff and we were probably three in and we were hanging out and I still was like, I don't like this car stuff, but I didn't have another solution. And I don't like to derail the room when I don't have a solution. I don't like to be like, I hate this. And then we're all just sitting around like, whoa. <laughs> so I was like, all right, man, I'm just gonna keep letting them cook. But in my mind, I'm like, I don't love this. And then one of the writers came over, Ryan Donahue, who's my friend. And he just came over to hang out and drink and talk about the show and what's been going on. And we were hanging out and we were drinking and we were just talking. I was like, I don't really like it still. It still feels a little like stiff and not me and da da da. And he was like, Yeah, I feel what you're saying. And I was like, It should just feel like this. It should feel like this. It should just feel like conversation. Like it should feel like a hang. And he was like, Yo, yeah, like a hang. Like when you always have things at your crib. I always have people at my house. Like I pick houses. Like I pick apartments for like, can I entertain? Is there enough space for people to come over and hang? Because I'm always like hanging out. And I'm, he was like, yeah, like I hang at your place because it's always so many different people. And I was like, yeah, that'll be dope. And I called Princess drunk uh, and I was like, yo, it's da 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 And I was like, do you get it? And he was like, no. And I was like, okay, I'm going to call you when I'm not drunk. And I'll talk to you about it in the morning. And he was like, cool. <laughs> and then I called him in the morning and I was like, it's like this. You know what I mean? And this is how all the things link. And he was like, oh, that could be fire. Let's try it. And, you know. So the show being what it is, is a testament to everybody, really. It's a testament to Prentice. It's a testament to the writers and their patients because I came in and was like, hey, now we're doing a party and like that's what we're doing. So let's go back over all this stuff and kind of reframe it. And it's a testament to HBO just giving us room to make something cool. I can't imagine conceptually what they might have thought. Like, I'm going to interview my homies and we're just going to be at my crib drinking. And then that's that's the show. Would love to have seen the look on the HBO execs face when you sold them this. <laughs> and all the episodes, though, they feel so personal, too. Like, it, it feels like something that is it like a, I don't want to oversell and say an issue in your life, but something that relates to your life. Like the one about having kids. Right <laughs> now. How did you find a woman who had had nine children? You know, everybody we find is really Kia Stone, the casting director. She's like really dope because the show is very wild and we don't give her much. Like, I'll just call Kia and be like, I need to talk to three studs with their titties out. And she'll be like, all right, I'll go find that. And then she goes out and finds whatever. So we were saying like, we want to talk to someone who had a lot of kids and we were like going through these people, but they were super like uh, the people we were finding were doing it for like a religious reason because they believed like they were like that was the only people we could find when we were Googling and searching for people. And I was like, I don't want it to be like that because that's not the conversation I'm trying to have, you know? And he was like, I know a lady from my church. And I was like, for real? <laughs> she was like, yeah, and she's really sweet. And she's this and she's that. And she's, this is I think she could be good. And I was like, all right. And that was that. <laughs> Now, in the season finale of Pause, uh, you talk about how freedom to you is essentially living like white people in this particular way, where who the president, you know, is doesn't matter, where these systems don't matter to you. Uh, I knew exactly what you went. I'm probably explaining this very inarticulately and you can certainly clean up what I have messed up. But basically, you want to get to the point where you're not in survival mode all the time in terms of how you navigate your life. Uh, what do you think it will take for you to get to that point of freedom that you talked about in the finale? I don't know, man. I got to I got to invent an app. I got to invent some tech. Text where it's at. That's what that's, <laughs> I got to get. I got to get tech savvy or 
be like uh, 50 Cent and just put like $200 into some vitamin water and watch my whole life change. I don't know. I don't really have an answer. I'm still trying to figure it out, to be quite honest. Is this something that you feel like comes with a certain level of financial freedom? For sure. I don't think I don't think you get there without it. it I do think money is like uh, the driver in this country over over everything. I think it's money then race, but they're just very closely intertwined. You know what I mean? But I think money is a, a slightly above race for sure. You spent though the, a lot of the episode kind of calling out these kind of uh, oppressive capitalistic systems um, because you, you know, you get a good bit of your material from there. Is there any part of you that feels, I don't know, a little bit guilty that you, you want to be rich. You want to be kind of a part of the capitalist. No, no, it's like that age old, like, like Kanye conflict of like, I'm a Christian, but I want to like sin and I want to like buy change. I think everybody kind of lives with that thing of like knowing the system is gross, but also wanting the stuff, you know what I mean? And so, no, I, I don't personally. I'm just like, there's got to be a medium somewhere, though. I haven't figured it out yet, but I definitely want money and things. <laughs> well, what is I mean, I imagine now you're you're doing OK for yourself. What is this season of your life feel like where you're on TV? I mean, my husband just saw a billboard. Are you here in L.A. like the other day? Because <laughs> I told him I was interviewing you and he's like, hey, I think I just saw her. I forgot what street it was. But at any rate, what does this season of your life feel like? Because you're making money. You're kind of famous. So what does it feel like? Oh, uh, weird weird i don't know if i thought of I, you know you make stuff because you want to make stuff i don't i didn't think like i want to be famous i just always wanted to be use my intellect to to create and and be uh i was thinking about this earlier today i was like i've always just wanted to be a person because i used to say i wanted to be in a, a, a think tank i used to be like i think i could do that i think i could get into some kind of think tank action i think i was just always a person that wanted to be valued for my my mind and not like physicality you know, not my output physically, but mentally what I had to offer. And so doing this was just a way to do that. It was like, oh, this is a creative space where I get to create and then create with other creators. I wasn't thinking about fame so much. So now that there's like this element of fame on top of it, it's a little weird. People walk up to you and like know who you are or want to take pictures of you or you have to be a little more conscious of how you're behaving outside because people are aware of you. You know what I mean? And like, that stuff can get a little weird. So I guess I'm in this little transition where it feels weird more than anything. Yeah, I mean, I know it for you, it probably, you know, goes, feels a little weird for anybody. When, you know, when people start to recognize you, you start to make a little money, you're not really sure what to do with it all. But um, nevertheless, though, tell me about the first time you felt famous. Oh, man, the first time I felt famous... I, it was pretty recently, actually. I feel like people I felt recognized before. You know, I did a special. People like recognize you, but feeling like oh, I'm like famous has been recently, and it's honestly been because of like stand up. Like, you know, even after the special, I wasn't like just selling out shows quickly, and now like shows sell out, or if I get called to the stage and they say pause, like the room like erupts, and it's like oh, people are here because they know who I am. That's different than just, you know, being a dirty little stand-up in these streets and just slanging jokes where I can. So I guess that's where it really kind of reveals itself to me that there's like a, a another echelon going on. Now, um, you were born in Atlanta, is that right? And raised in Boston? Yeah, I was born in Atlanta and I left when I was a baby. My dad died when I was like a baby baby. So then my mom sent me to Atlanta to be with my grandmas and, and my aunts and stuff while she like situated stuff in Atlanta to move back to get help. Gotcha. So you obviously you, you spent some time in Boston and I'm I'm sure you're aware of what happens when Boston is accused of being a racist city. And a friend of mine used to say I thought was the funniest thing about Boston. He said nothing is more racist than when Boston tries to prove that they're not racist. <laughs> As someone who is black and from Boston, what is it like really since you have the authority on this? Honestly, it's no different than, it's tough because it's like, if you live in Atlanta, then it's drastically different. You know what I mean? But when I think about Philly, I'm like, Boston's not more racist than Philly. It's just <laughs> like, it's just a, a, a East coast city with poor white people in it. Like, what, what do you want? Like, uh, 
I feel like it, it wasn't like I got spit on walking in school or like called out my name or, you know, called nigger or anything like that. Like a girl did it once in Girl Scout camp. You know what I mean? Like, but I do think it was systematically, it's a very racist town. It's in the systems. It's in, you know, there was no black chief of police. I feel like until like three years ago, like you didn't just see black people in positions of power in the city. Like you go to Atlanta, you see billboards, there's black mayor, there's black lawyers, there's like, you don't see that in Boston. And you and, and you're just now starting to see it. Like there was no representation of us in positions of power. There weren't a lot of black principles. I didn't, you, you just didn't see that. You know what I mean? And so I think that's to me, when I think of the racism of the city, I, I think of it more in, in, the, in those contexts and how they would kind of keep black people in, in one area. And they really didn't want us like downtown and they would make dress code rules, like no hats, no Timberlands, no dangly chains. And it's like, all right, <laughs> you just don't want us here. That's clear. So to me, I think about it more in those terms when I, when I think about it, but it's not like uh, getting bricks thrown at you in the streets anymore not to say that didn't happen we progressed past that racism <laughs> when my mom was growing up yeah when i was growing up now nah. well uh i i don't know if you still get this reaction but when you tell people you're from boston um you know i'm from detroit and whenever i would hear somebody black say they were from boston i'd be like what because other than new edition i honestly didn't know black people lived in boston when i was growing up i was like oh they're there okay um these people still give you that response when you tell them that 100 percent, and as a representative of Black Bostonians, I will say this on this podcast. We all hate it so much. We, it's like the most annoying thing because there's Black people everywhere, one. And two, like, Boston has such a Black history to it. Like, Malcolm X started his first independent mosque there. Martin Luther King used to visit there a lot. Bill Russell opened a soul food restaurant there. It's full of Black history. And so it's like, yeah, man, duh. Like, <laughs> there's black people in Boston. It can't just be New Edition. They had mamas, niggas. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> so, as I mentioned earlier, you didn't start doing comedy until you were 29. So, what what took you so long? I'm a late bloomer. I just, <laughs> I, I'm a, I think a lot. I analyze a lot. I'm very, I take my time to things. My aunts used to always say that, like, I just, even as a baby, I just took my time. I also was just going through a lot. You know, my mom died when I was 16 and like I spent a lot of years just trying to figure out who I was after that and like what what life was supposed to be. You know what I mean? And I definitely think that derailed me for a while, just period, as spiritually and like uh, in a lot of ways. You know, when you lose a parent, it's just it's it's a hole there and it's really tough. And so I just had to live some life, you know what I mean, to kind of figure out who I really was and where, where I wanted to land and what I wanted to do. And then fear, the fear of like trying it, the fear of being good at it, honestly. And then what does that mean? You know, if I'm good at it and my life now changes or now there's an expectation, am I ready to live up to that? Like all that kind of stuff, you know? Well, um, those early days when you were getting started, um, how worried or how much thought did you give the fact that, you know, they, it's that old phrase about if if you if they see it, they will be it. But there was nobody for you to see that, you know, uh, had your experiences, your background, had your identity. So did that add to maybe some of the reservations that you had at the time? No, because at that point, I was just so much like, yo, it is what it is. Like, I'm just going to get here and shoot my shot. And, you know, you did have like Wanda Sykes. You, you had some like level of like there apollo poundstone you know like there was but no it wasn't like a like a stud like a black stud like this version of black masculine of center uh femininity no i did not see that you know what i mean um but that also kind of motivated me you know what i'm saying because i was like that's kind of whack that like we're not seeing that and it's kind of whack that like the only version of gay blackness is like you know, no, not to anybody. It was just like older women that, you know, weren't living the shit that I was living. There wasn't anyone that was like, and there's so many studs. It was like, I'm not seeing anyone who was going to Black Pride in Atlanta with their niggas and just trying to like bag bitches. And like, no one's just talking from that, <laughs> like experience of like that. And I was just like, oh, I think we should see that as well. <laughs> um, when did you figure out that you, this was something that you could make a living 
when I first got like $500 to do a show, I was like, oh, I can like survive off of this, which was all the first goal. That was my only goal, really, when I started comedy was like, if I could make $30,000 a year, which is like what I'm making now doing something I fucking hate. If I can make that doing comedy somehow, that'll be great. At, at that time, what did your ceiling look like to you? I didn't really see one. I know that sounds cocky, but I didn't. So you weren't like, okay, eventually I want to be, you know, headlining a comedy special on Showtime or HBO or. The goal, the goal was to get an hour. The goal was like to get an hour down that I was proud of and have it live somewhere. Were you uh, early on? Did you, um, you know, were you ever like booed or did you ever have like negative experiences? I mean, yeah, for sure. Like uh, the first time I, I got, on at an open mic the very first open mic i did i got booed by this guy and like i didn't even get to say i probably said two words and he started booing me because they they did it at this bar well it was like a vfw lounge and the show was happening after this event and so they were trying to like flip the event into audience members because they didn't really have audience members but the people there just wanted to watch basketball and then they turned off the basketball game and was like no we're doing like you know forcing comedy on these people and so the minute i got on the mic and this is my first time like i'm just like i'm just like it's not my first time it's my first time back and doing comedy because i tried comedy when i was like 21 22. but this is like my first time like i'm doing this and i'm back at this right and i say like two words and he's just from the back you just hear boo and i was like okay yeah this sucks this is not the way i wanted this to feel yeah i read um something uh that you said in a in an interview where you talked about how while you respect the audience you don't want the audience to control you um and what did you exactly mean by that meaning i can't function by their whim like I, I'm I'm the captain of the ship and like I'm narrating the experience and it has to be the experience that I, I want to create. And I can't go like, oh, they, they're they're uncomfortable because I'm talking about anything rape or they're uncomfortable because I'm talking about uh, my dad smoking crack or whatever it is. I can't let that make it so I don't. Well, then I'm not going to talk about that. No, I, this is the stuff that I want to talk about. So either I can find a way to like get them to come along, which is the goal. Like I might need to change some wording or maybe I'm coming in too harsh. Maybe I need some buffers before I go where I'm going, but I don't, I don't allow the audience to make me take things off the table. Mm. Is there something you will never put on the table that you don't think you will talk about? I don't know. I don't know. You know, I don't think so. I just talk about things when I'm ready. You know, I don't talk about my mom a lot. I just don't know what I want to say about that. And that may be something I never really have, anything funny to say about or it doesn't really fit the experience you know what i mean or or what i'm creating and maybe that comes out in another way like maybe i write a book or i don't know maybe it lives somewhere else but there's nothing in my head where i'm like no nah, that's off limits you know what i mean i think if i had kids I, I may not talk about my children that's surprising because the 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 episode you did about kids on pause, it seems like I could imagine you having kids and them giving you a lot of material. <laughs> I think so, but I'm such like a dark comic. I would I would be saying shit like I hate my fucking kids and I don't want my kids to, to hear shit like that. <laughs> you gotta like walk and live with that. So it's like, you know, I probably would just leave that alone unless it was like light and cute. You know what I mean? Yeah. But you don't want me saying no reckless stuff about your child. Well, you do, um, you know, you open the door quite a bit in talking about your relationship and you've almost made your partner like another character that we get to learn. I didn't make her that. She she is that. <laughs> I, I It made me wonder, especially, you know, seeing her in, in, in pause, it made me wonder, what is an argument with you two like? It's like two old bitches just <laughs> yapping at each other in the house, honestly. <laughs> honestly that that's pretty much what it is <laughs> i mean well, what do you what do you like pearl from 227 going at it that's your grandma and your grandma's best friend just like arguing over sweet and low that's the that's the vibe still there <laughs> <laughs> well um i guess now that you sort of have introduced the world to to who she is how does she how does she handle that she's better i think at first it was a lot you know what i mean because like people are nice but people are also very mean you know what i'm saying and so she got both of those things and i don't think she was expecting that you know what i mean 
And she's a very like sweet person by nature. So she will be like, why would you say something like that to somebody? And I'm like, because people are terrible, babe. Like, what do you want? You know what I mean? Like, they're awful. Human beings stink. So I think it took a while to like figure out how to filter that energy. But now that she knows how to filter that energy, I mean, I think it's been good for her because it's just allowing her to find what her way too, in a way. Like, she's mad talented at a lot of different things. And I think just being around me and, and being around other talented people and watching us like focus and create is helping her like guide herself. Now, do people, because you talked about your relationship, when they come up to you or come up to both of you, is are are they almost like approaching you like they actually know you? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, people say crazy stuff. It's really it's really wild. We went to we, we were somewhere on a vacation, and the guy I tell my girl like don't tell people that I do stuff, but she's always so like proud, and especially like the special that just came out. So she was like, you need to watch our special, and then. We go to a nice dinner and we see him and his lady and he's like, hey, I watched your special. I don't want you to suck my dick. And then, you can tell his like wife was very embarrassed. and She kind of like sat him down like that's inappropriate. And then he's like, oh, man, I'm so sorry. And it's just like, bro, <laughs> what the fuck? So, yeah, that's that happens. That definitely happens all, all, all the time. Yeah, I can imagine saying that to a human being I did not know. I actually really wouldn't say that to somebody I didn't know. That's the thing. They watch you and they feel like they know you. Right. Well, so I guess in in your it's a weird compliment, but I guess it, it has worked too well to some degree. To some degree. Yeah. I used to do this joke about having a purple strap on. And then I was at a gas station and this dude walked up to me. He was like, you got your purple dick on you? And I was like, what the fuck? And he was like, no, nah, no, nah, I saw you at Slade's and you did this. I'm like, oh, <laughs> like, bro, you can't just come cold turkey like that. <laughs> That's weird. That's off the top rope. Um, look, there's a lot more I, I want to uh, talk to you about, but we're going to take a quick break. Want to definitely talk to you a little bit about uh, SNL and some of the projects that you have coming up. But we will take a momentary pause and we'll be back See what I did there? Momentary pause. See, see, that's what I pay me the big bucks. Um, a momentary pause and back with more with Sam J. As you just heard, Sam J shared her coming out experience. Sounds like she was supported when she made that decision to come out. But I got a story to tell about how I unknowingly didn't support a friend of mine who came out to me and how that changed my life. Even though my mother's first husband was gay or at least bisexual, I did not start to learn about the LGBTQ community. And by learn, I mean befriend, understand, empathize, see the commonality of struggle with this community and other marginalized communities until I was in college. A good friend of mine, a woman, came out to me uh, when I was in college and I was very supportive and encouraging. And then a few years later, I was hanging out with a friend who asked me an unexpected question. He said, or rather he asked, do you think gay people are going to hell? Now, this was shortly after college, not even with my background or starting to learn more about this community prevented my answer from being this. My answer was yes, gay people are going to hell. I recited the Bible verses I had been taught that condemned homosexuality. Me, who at the time was not anywhere close to being a regular churchgoer, but had grown up in the church. Me, who at the time when I said this was drunk, no excuse, just context. Me, who had been doing my share of fornicating and was living a life that certainly would not pass mustard under Christian scrutiny. Now, my friend and I debated for a bit and I didn't think anything of it. And then a couple years after that, after I had even more matured in my knowledge of the LGBTQ community, he finally told me he was gay. And that it had been on his mind for a while to tell me. And when he asked me that question about gay people going to hell, he was more or less feeling me out about how I might respond if he came out to me. But after our conversation, he opted not to tell me because he was afraid I'd either end our friendship or it would change so drastically that it wasn't worth preserving. 
it was an emotional conversation and I apologize. I felt really ashamed because I had a role in him not feeling supported and loved. He already was feeling isolated because only a few of our friends knew at the time and not even his parents knew. I let my friend down in a moment of need and vulnerability and it taught me a very valuable lesson about not only empathy, But sometimes it's okay to shut the fuck up before you know what people are going through. From that moment on, I worked very hard on my allyship with the LGBTQ community and the trans community. I certainly haven't been perfect, but while I'm disappointed in the way I handled that situation, I learned so much from that experience and it helped me be a better person going forward. I just hate that I had to learn at his expense. And now back to Sam J. So how did you develop your voice in your comedy? Um, I just talked about the things I wanted to talk about uh, and just kept talking about them and figuring out how to like make them relatable to people. <laughs> you know what I mean? I just, again, I didn't let the audience dictate me. So when things di- weren't comfortable for them, I didn't back off of them because they weren't comfortable. And I didn't try to go like, oh, I guess I can't talk about that. Or I mean, I'm getting up and I'm talking about strap ons. I'm talking about all this stuff that's very like unfamiliar to people in in all honesty. And so if I, if I stopped there, I would, I wouldn't be here. You know what I mean? So it was definitely just a determination of like, I'm going to get you to see that I'm just a person that this is just human shit at the end of the day. You know, it's because as I have watched you um, and simultaneously, of course, there's this, inane very frustrating i find it to be conversation about quote unquote you know cancel culture which to me does not even exist but i i'm watching you and i'm like okay i there's nothing that she won't talk about like there's no limitation that i sense is around your comedy but nevertheless there are comedians who feel like that today's audience is just so much more sensitive and they can't say so much and this and that uh what are your thoughts on that um you know is it any limitations or is this just what people are saying the cancel culture of it all makes you think about it a little more right it just it has it gives you pause and you have to go okay like how am i gonna approach this and still even in that you might miss and they still might be like pissed off you know like the internet or whatever i just think it's all intention at the end of the day and as long as you're doing things that are true to you and like you're not being mean for the sake of being mean and you're not being nasty just to be nasty but there's intent behind what you're doing then you'll be fine even if you misstep yeah i mean but i guess i I guess my question would be to those people who feel like it's so stifling in comedy or whatever is well what is it that you really want to say that you're not able to say they just wake up and be like dumb dykes need to die and it's like all right well like glad you got it off your chest (laughs) (laughs) i don't know like i don't know what you want people to do with that you know what i mean but you should be able to talk about lesbians if you're not a lesbian i don't i don't believe that's off limits you know what i mean so i just i just think it's like intent and like why why are you saying what you're saying now at the same time do you consider and maybe this wasn't the point like you said you just talking about shit that you wanted to talk about um but at the same time do you think you're kind of educating uh, people about maybe black lesbianism in a way they had not ever thought about? And and what kind of reactions do you get from people who are like, oh, I, I didn't know lesbians did that? <laughs> uh, I think by default, I am by just being me. And I get a lot of messages from older black women who are like, thank you, baby. <laughs> this was very insightful to me. And I'm like, wow, they just listened to me say like nigga 30 million times and cut a bunch. Uh, but they were still able to pull some good shit out of it. So that's awesome. And then a lot of men, a lot of men who are just like, oh, wow. So there's a, sim- a lot of similarities that I didn't realize were there type of shit. But I do think it's just by default, you know, like it's not intentional. I'm not like, I heard like, I'm going to educate y'all. I'm just like, here's an experience that maybe you haven't considered. And here's a perspective that maybe you haven't thought about. Yeah. I mean, because I have to say when you told the joke in um, I think it's three in the morning about uh, about the whole chivalry. <laughs> You've been expected to carry the bags and all this. And you're like, but I'm a woman. Like, what the fuck? And I was like, you know, I hadn't thought about that in, in a lesbian relationship. Who is in, in charge of the chivalry and, and all that? <laughs> 
that stuff. It was cool though. We went on a vacation recently and my girl was like, is it okay if I bring two bags? And I'm like, yeah, I got you. <laughs> like, all right. So you may have unintentionally uh, helped her with a habit <laughs> by her seeing that. You were, uh, you know, writing for Saturday Night Live, um, which I've heard other black writers, I mean, Natasha Rothwell, I've had her on the podcast, and she, saw, she talked about what that experience was like, you know, for her, knowing how the writer's room works and, you know, you're constantly having, you know, bits and sketches you're coming up with that are rejected. How did, uh, what did that teach you being in that kind of environment where you have to really work very hard to, for your things to actually make air? It just taught me how to work hard. <laughs> it taught me how to work very hard. It also taught me how not to be attached to things. You know what I mean? Like, I, it's it, at some point I had to accept that, like, I'm a cog in a wheel, and this is not my this is not my machine. You know what I mean? And so, if I don't get a sketch on, then it's my job to still help the show. It's my job to still pitch to other people. It's my job to still watch sketches and see if I see some that that's off. Or if I, if I hear a line at the table and I'm like, Oh, that could be funnier. Like, and, and, and in that way, you're still in the show, you know, I don't know if there's once I kind of accepted that and not being all caught up in like my shit, it's like, there's not a, a, a episode that I don't feel a part of, you know what I mean? But yeah, sometimes your sketches don't go. And like, and they are tailoring to their audience. You can't be mad at that. Like, it, it, you know, you know what it is when you walk in there, you know what kind of place it is, you know, that the audience for, you know, most part is very white. You know what I mean? And you know that that's the audience that they're trying to cater to. So, yeah, they, there's things they just don't get. But what I also learned in that process was like, keep bringing that stuff to the table because it changes the DNA of the show. Like, I feel like even in the last year or two years of my run, the show got blacker and not just like black sketches for black sketch sake, but like, no, this is a black person wrote this. <laughs> like, and it, it was, you know, I think you just have to teach the table too. They, they, you keep doing it. They start to learn. They start to be like, Oh, and you'll even hear some words that you use in another person's sketch in a week or two, because the language changes. And that's like the nature of what it is. And that goes both ways. You know what I mean? There was things I, I was picking up from other people's stuff. That was something that Che taught me when I was like having just a rough time at the table. And like, cause I didn't get a, I didn't get a sketch on until March of my first year, which is like the season's almost over. And I was just like, I'm going to get fired. I was for sure like, they're going to fire me. But um, Che would just be like, just pay attention to the table. Like, you're not getting stuff on, but just watch how the table works. Pay attention to the flow of it, and that'll help you. And it did. It helped me learn, like, how to cast. I might have wrote a sketch that was all right, but I cast it all wrong. So now it's, it's not all right, because the, the, the roles I'm giving people, that's not where they really do well. So just learning what people do well, learning where they're good, and learning what's going to make them excited, Cause if they're excited, they're going to bring more to it. You know what I mean? And so like just figuring all that out, I look at SNL as like a paid internship. It's just like, you learn so much and the education is invaluable. Like and it, you'll take it with you forever. I don't think I would have been able to make pause without going through SNL. Right. And certainly the, the, obviously the sketch part of it, you know, you can obviously drafting from some of your experience on Saturday night live, by the way, the, the hotel in space, that bit was funny as fuck. <laughs> Jack Knight pitch, and it was the funniest pitch day ever because we were struggling, we were struggling, we were struggling, and then Jack was like, "The only way to solve this is like we were talking about all the stuff we've been talking about," and he was like, "You got to send a nigga to the moon," and we're like, "What?" So we keep going, <laughs> like that makes no sense. We keep going, we keep going, we keep going, we keep going, and by the end, close to the end of the day, Jack's like, "Yo." What we should do is we should send a whole tap to space because da, 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 and he gives like the logic and we're like, oh, that's dope. And he's like, that's what I said earlier. I was like, no, that's not what you said earlier. It was send a nigga to the moon. <laughs> and that made no sense. But that that's dope. And that's how we got to to that uh that that last finale sketch. And my favorite part is Dr. Umar and the stars. I was just gonna say, when the Dr. Umar is in the clouds, I was like, oh my God. <laughs> fucking bananas it's truly like my favorite part of the season i always tease prentice because i'm like man we just do wild shit and i'd be feeling bad for him i'm like i just got you in bed with all these like dirty comics like you're just you were such a little innocent insecure boy and now we're over here just corrupting the fuck out of you 
And all you wanted to do was make a late night show, man. You just you wanted it to be so simple. And it's insane. Even though um, you went through those struggles at Saturday Night Live, I imagine then it must have felt really good when you wrote the sketch for Eddie Murphy that obviously made the show. Was it Velvet Jones? I think Black Black Jeopardy. Tell me how you came up with that and what that meant to you that you wrote something for Eddie Murphy. Honestly, in pitch, you know, so like the first day when the host comes, we all have to go into Lauren's office and like pitch an idea. And I had pitched him this idea of Velvet Jones writing a new book. I don't know if you know the character Velvet Jones, but he would write these books. And I was like, oh, Velvet Jones should come out with a new book called This Me Too Shit Don't Make No Sense. And then like everybody laughed and they were like, hey, we really like that. Eddie really liked that Velvet Jones thing. But like, what do you think about putting it into Black Jeopardy? Because, you know, a lot of times the show is like, what vehicle does it work for the show? So, you know, Tuck and Che are like uh, the creators of Black Jeopardy. Um, That sketch has been going on since before I was there. And then I just got to get down with them and, you know, write something cool. And it was just cool to... It was just cool to do. And I got another sketch on that had got cut after dress. So it was just cool to like watch Eddie Murphy say any words that I had thought about. I was like, this is fucking crazy. It was definitely like it was it was wild. How much did you get a chance to interact with him? And what were those interactions like? A lot. He was really cool. Like the day like meet because it's like you can meet with a host or whatever to like pitch ideas on Tuesday night before we write. That's the writer's night. So he came by the office and he was just like hanging out with me and Gary, who's the dude I usually write with, Gary Richardson. He's brilliant. Um, and we were just talking about basketball, about how it was for him when he first started working here. He was saying like how his office was set up. He was like, nah, this used to be here, like what the building used to look like. But he was saying how it still kind of feels the same and it's surreal. He was asking us about our experience. And he was like, at least y'all have each other. Like I was here by myself and I was younger than everybody. It was fucking crazy. And like, he was just really fucking cool. And then he left and me and Gary were like, whoa. And I was like, I'm going to take a walk. Gary's like, yeah, me too. That was fucking crazy. And I was like, holy shit. It was really bananas. He was really like open and cool. And like, it was dope. Have you written something for SNL that did make it? And when it did, you were like, that wasn't as funny as I thought it was going to (laughs) be. All the time. (laughs) Ah, There's so many. It happens all the time, quite honestly. Most of the time, Lord is smart and he'll cut them. So they don't actually get to see the light of day. <laughs> He's very good about uh, figuring that out. Uh, hmm. The one that I wrote with Tuck about Vermont, though I think it's funny, I thought it was going to be funnier, with Adam Driver, where they're like uh, white supremacists and they're like, we need to find a place where white people can be free. And it's like, and Adam Driver keeps saying, there's a place like that, it's called Vermont. And like, he keeps trying to convince them to just transfer themselves to Vermont, which Vermont press did not enjoy at all. But um, <laughs> that one I probably thought, I thought it was going to be stronger than it was. You know, you, you you talked about some of the things that you, you've learned from your, you know, SNL experience. I know that like everybody has a different experience there, but when SNL was like under attack for lack of diversity and all that, um, you know, what was sort of your viewpoint on that? Because I, I, I had a conversation with, with Kenan about it here on, on the podcast. And what I always find interesting is that whenever that topic comes up, they go run into all the black people and say, hey, what did you think about that? Now, granted, I'm doing that here as well. But um, I always, always wonder, like, oh, how come nobody ever asked Lauren Michaels that? Like, why do the black people have to suddenly be responsible for why SNL doesn't have any diversity? But nevertheless, what did you think when that conversation arose again? You know, white people gonna be white. I don't know what to tell you. It's like, it's <laughs> not the only space that lacks diversity in like entertainment in the world. You know what I mean? And so, I mean, yeah, get better at it for sure. It, But I also was just kind of like, I don't know, man. It's on NBC. <laughs> You're like, what do you expect? <laughs> what do you expect? Well, in general, though, do you, do you think right now is a good time to be a black creator? I won't relegate you to just being a comic, but to be a black creator, especially coming off 2020, the pandemic. And there was at least for a moment, it seemed to be this time where people are t- trying to recommit themselves to black people. What does it feel like from your end? 
I mean, I'm excited because like the white guilt is making them get all my friends TV shows. And so we're all getting rich together. And that's nice. It's nice to get rich with your friends. Uh, <laughs> I don't think because it's not like black people have suddenly become creative. It's just like white people are just feeling bad and they don't know how to really fix what they do. So they start handing out golden tickets. And I'm like, all right, baby, if that's, if that's the game we're playing. <laughs> Cool. Well, that reminds me of the courtroom sketch with uh, the woman who was uh, the black perpin as a black MAGA person. <laughs> and you were like, you do that, bitch. <laughs> yeah, it feels like that a little bit where it's like, but it's also like we're getting good shit out of it. So it's like, that's dope. You know what I'm saying? Wherever the, the, the energy or the why is coming from, I think at the end of the day, like it's opening like the tapestry of entertainment and dope shit is getting made and from a lot of different voices and a lot of different perspectives which is also showing that black people are not monolithic that gay people aren't that any group that you're trying to just give one identity to that that actually doesn't exist and there's just a plethora of identities and ideas and opinions within all things and so in that regard it's it's really cool so what's the future hold for for pause the first season's done so is it coming back sam Mm -hmm. I don't know. Um, hopefully, if they let me, I'll do it again. Uh, it was fun. You know, I, I of course, I, I'm thinking about how to do it better and also keep it true to what it is. I don't want to lose everything it is because people like it, you know? I think sometimes something raw and cool can become not raw and cool once it becomes popular. So it's like, how do you balance that where you still keep it funky and fun? Um but yeah, if they let me, for sure. Most importantly, what do I got to do to get up in the dinner party? To get up in the party, man? To come to the party. Everyone wants to come to the party. That's like What I got to do to get in the Sam J house party? That's all I need to know. We just have to be friends. We just have to... You, okay. you know what? I'm going to be in the lane for two months. We just have to get drunk together once. And I got to know how you are drunk. And then you're invited. That's really my only rule. Okay. I love tequila. You love tequila. We're good. <laughs> 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 What's your favorite tequila, by the way? I like Don Julio 42. Same. See, we friends already. <laughs> but I'll drink some Cosmigos if I gotta. If I gotta. Right. I don't really drink any tequila except when you start getting like low, low, like Jose's and stuff. I can't do no more. No. If you offer me Cuervo, I'm assuming you don't like me. Yeah. But the whole time I was in Jamaica, I was drinking Cuervo because that's all they had. In a tight situation, maybe like that. Maybe. I'll do it. But I wasn't happy about it. <laughs> <laughs> we talked a little bit earlier in the podcast about like, um, you know, money and fame and how this is brought on in this season of your life. What's the most complicated thing to you about having a little bit of money? Right now, honestly, is that that wealth isn't spread yet. I don't have the ability to spread that wealth to my family and friends. And so it's like having to have experiences without them. Or if I wanted to have experiences with them having to pay for everything. Does that make sense? Oh, yes, it does make sense. <laughs> Absolutely. And I can't put that on them. Like, but I also don't want to like I have a way that I like to do shit now and I don't want to do it differently. You know what I'm saying? So then you're just like, all right, well, then I'm about to just drop 10,000 so that we all get to do it. You know what I mean? It, it does change your circle a little bit. And you may not intend for that to be the case because, you know, the homies is the homies and they've been there since whatever. But that is the the constant um, conflict that you face. Me and my girls call it new money problems, and um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's like it's like the, that's that's a new money situation. Um, and because we realized there was a certain standard that we had all progressed to, like I can't go to dinner with people who itemize bills anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just don't even let I don't even let it go down. Yeah, cuz <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like I I can't go to dinner with that person who's like, "Well, I had the pop shooters and the mozzarella sticks, but that was it." Like, no, nah, we're not doing that. Yeah, we we're splitting it or we we not splitting it. Or we not. Yeah, pretty much. All right, Sam, well before I get you out of here, there is a game that I play with all of my guests. Very simple. The game is called This or That. The choice is yours. You can go with this or you can go with that. I'm gonna give you two choices. You gotta pick one. Underline that part. You gotta pick one. Okay. Okay. Damon Wayne's or Kim Wayne's? Damon. Yeah. That was a tough decision. 
she's very funny and i think she's very underrated i say that all the time she's like a great actress but she's just she's super fucking funny and like anytime they would just give her a little part she was she would take that shit and like blow it the fuck out in such an amazing way from like don't be a menace to i'm gonna get you sucker like she's funny as fuck but damon like is one of the people that i don't credit enough with making me fall in love with stand-up he's a, such a good stand-up i always tell people when they watch i'm gonna get you sucker i was like just pay attention to kim wayne singing the saints go marching in <laughs> she's so funny um i know you worked at both places um starbucks or best buy best buy the discounts you get that wholesale, baby. <laughs> Before anyone had a TiVo, I was pausing and, and rewinding TV. As a karaoke song, uh, Can You Stand the Rain or I Want It That Way? I Want It That Way. I know that sounds like some sucker shit, but give me a good 90s boy band karaoke and I will kill that shit. It was a setup question because like, when you be from Boston, I'm like, I'm a- <laughs> I know, but I'm a 90s baby, dog. Give me some beat backstreet, some NSYNC on a karaoke. Murder it. I'm going to drop to one knee, go crazy on you. Uh, New York or LA? New York. Mm. Uh, And finally, another setup question. BBD or New Edition? I'll have to be honest and say BBD because of my age. Mm -hmm. Because you said the 90s. That's why I was like, she's going to pick BBD for sure. You know, um, us uh, fossils like myself will always pick new editions. <laughs> yeah, so that's the way it works. Um, well, look, Sam, I want to thank you so much for spending this time with me. Um, congratulations on the show. And I don't let me know what HBO exec I got to write to be like, I need pause back in my life. <laughs> All right, I'm, I'm going to send you a number. You can call <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. I said it. Said who I got to call because like we, us, us in the pause hive. We gonna we gonna create some momentum to make sure that this gets done. But very happy for your success and all the things that you've done. And I'm gonna hold you to that tequila date. So we'll get it cracking. Thank you. All right, Sam is getting out of here. Final segment coming up next. Fuck it, I'm bothered. It was just a few podcasts ago that I went off on rapper the baby because of his lack of support he was showing for Meg the Stallion, who allegedly was shot by Tory Lanez. And the baby, who has several hits with Meg, not only recorded a song with Tory Lanez, the man who allegedly shot her, but he also retweeted a tweet in which someone said, I guess the baby and Tory Lanez cool now because both shot somebody and don't have to do no jail time. But Apparently, the baby was just getting started when it came to showing the world he's trash. At the Rolling Loud Music Festival in Miami recently, the baby got on stage and decided, you know what? This seems like a really good time for me to completely set my career on fire. You didn't show up today with HIV, AIDS, any of them deadly sexual transmitted diseases that'll make you die in two, three weeks, put a cell phone light in the air. Lady, if your pussy smell like water, put a cell phone light in the air. Fellas, lights up. Fellas, if you ain't sucking nigga dick in the parking lot, put your cell phone lights up. Let's be real about this shit. Yeah, keep it fucking real. Some of y'all niggas suspect as a motherfucker. Let's be real. It's the homophobia for me. It's the insensitivity. It's the shaming. It's the self-inflicted moronic stupidity. Imagine losing a ton of bags because seven different music festivals have since dropped him simply because you couldn't say. Throw your hands in the air, wave them like you just don't care. Or all the ladies say, ow, woo, child, the ghetto. As for me and why I'm bothered, it's for two reasons. One, disrespecting a black woman rarely comes with any consequences because before the baby went full homophobe and unsympathetic asshole, he actually brought Tory Lanez on stage with him at Rolling Loud after Meg the Stallion performed her set. About the tweet that referenced Tory Lanez shooting Meg, the baby said then that he accidentally retweeted it and didn't mean anything by it. Those of us with common sense knew he was lying then, but now you've made an aggressive move by bringing her attacker to the same festival she's performing at. That's not even gaslighting. That's just gross. Lovely guy. 
The second reason I'm bothered is because the reason the baby is losing gigs and money is because Elton John and Dua Lipa, who has a song with the baby, immediately spoke out against him. The baby didn't apologize until they got involved because before they did, he was basically doubling down on his own ignorance and stupidity because he probably never expected the LGBTQ community and allies to get information and let them know, not on our watch. Now, I know in our community, we grumble because we feel People are quicker to condemn those who insult the LGBTQ community, but they don't have that same energy when someone insults our community. And there's definitely some truth to that. But we also have to keep it real as well. Sometimes the reason people get away with shit against us is because we act like we can't live without certain things or certain people. We're still fucking with Kanye, even though he was all hugged up on the former white supremacist president and said slavery was a choice. Artists will gladly be produced by Kanye, despite the harm he's done to our community with his ignorance harm that he has never been accountable for harm that he's never apologized for. Now we're a forgiving people. Even when it's to our detriment, we sometimes provide soft landings for the wrong folks because we know that after mainstream America stops fucking with them, we're all that they have. Black folks can't afford to believe in cancel culture, which I do understand, but not everybody deserves our protection, especially when it's unearned. Stay unbothered. Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify and Unbothered Inc. From Unbothered Inc., Christina Tapper is our head of content, Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent, Rich Burner is our head of network production, and Evan Dick is our executive producer. From Spotify, our executive producer is Christina Tapper. Supervising producer is Jifa Yador. And project manager is Jessica Dow. Our theme, Word of the Week, and Fuck It On Bother tracks were written and performed by Brandon Lowe, produced by Lucas Fry and Alexander Hitchens. This or That Music, The Choice Is Yours, revisited by Black Sheep. Written by Andres Titus, William K. McLean, and Johnny Hammond from Universal Polygram International Publishing, Inc. on behalf of itself and Pete Boat Music. You can find me at Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill. And please remember to hit follow on Jamel Hill is Unbothered on Spotify and share with your friends. <laughs> this sound like theme music, motivation to grind and get you through with. Church. Unbothered, never losing, check the score. Jamel show improving. Don't make me tell you 5011 times from politics to laugh. Every week she shines. My word, how I live.